नमस्ते एंड वेलकम टू अनदर एडिशन ऑफ द भारत वार्ता वीकली जॉइनिंग अस फॉर द फर्स्ट टाइम वी पब्लिश एपिसोड्स ऑन पॉलिटिक्स पॉलिसी एंड कल्चर एवरी वीक फोकस्ड ऑन इंडिया सो डू फॉलो और सब्सक्राइब टू अस टू स्टे अपडेटेड ऑन ऑल ऑफ दिस ऑसम कॉन्टेंट इफ यूर अ रिटर्निंग विजिटर एंड यू लाइक अ कॉन्टेंट डू कंसिडर रेटिंग अस एंड रिव्यूंग अस ऑन योर फेवरेट प्लेटफॉर्म सो मोर पीपल कैन डिस्कवर अस वेल विद दैट आउट ऑफ द वे द वीकली इज वेर वी डिस्कस द न्यूज एंड इवेंट्स ऑफ द वीक दैट वॉज and it's been a pretty eventful week i should say we had election results in uh, himachal pradesh and gujarat uh, and of course uh, municipal elections in delhi which were of course uh, you know uh, highlighted big time across uh, tv channels and what not then we had the isro test hypersonic vehicles which was an interesting ve- development uh, and in more popcorn stuff uh, uh, twitter files 2.0 and 3.0 came out last week uh, with barry wise and uh, matt taibi releasing a few uh other uh, files and secrets in some economic news apple plans to move out of china and tsmc is uh, due to invest 40 billion dollars in an arizona plant for chips and in international news uh, russia and us uh, have swapped prisoners uh, last week and we'll talk to you about some of the significance of these things all right let's get started with the first piece of news for this week which is the election results uh, in uh, himachal gujarat and of course the municipal elections in delhi over the week the results of two general assembly elections and a municipal election in gujarat himachal pradesh and delhi were announced uh, in gujarat the bjp registered a historic win by winning 156 seats in the 182 member assembly aap managed to get a foothold in the state making it a national party himachal pradesh maintained its tradition of not voting an incumbent to power and gave congress a win with 40 seats in the 68 member assembly and in delhi's municipal corporation election The AAP ousted BJP by winning 134 seats in a house of 250 putting it just above the majority. Abhishek interesting results uh, you know of course uh, BJP coming back in full swing in Gujarat for the seventh time which is an incredible feat and uh, you know Himachal maintaining its uh, tradition of voting out the incumbent. So what do you make of these results? Yeah in some ways this was quite interesting that uh, all the three major parties won each of the elections but obviously very different implications or reasons behind each of them and we can't really generalize anything so let's start with the biggest one of them that is uh, gujarat right and i think uh, all of us were pretty certain that the bjp was definitely coming back to power here so the questions were basically what would be like the margins and what impact would the aam aadmi party have right which was sort of making a big push to get get itself started in gujarat and so as you said the results were very emphatic in favor of the bjp right it increased its uh, vote share from about 49% to 52.5% uh, but even more dramatically you know you will recall last election was very close right it had sort of uh, one hard fought victory and had only 99 seats last time so to go from 99 to 156 is a very spectacular performance i think the congress was the big loser in in this election in gujarat right they went from 77 seats down to 17 i think they are below even the threshold to get an opposition party leader right in the assembly and so if you see the congress party's you know recent developments they have been totally focused on two things one is their party election right which whatever you call it election or selection uh, which mr kharge won right against mr thru so that was one thing that was taking up lot of bandwidth the other is this uh, bharat jodo yatra that rahul gandhi has been on in the last few months right and which is still ongoing and so essentially they kind of ignored uh, the big wigs of uh, congress basically ignored the gujarat election 
I guess they were probably sure that they were not winning it or they had any chance rather I would say. And Aam Aadmi Party which has got only 5 seats but importantly you know uh, made a big dent in the Congress vote bank. So basically they got 13% of the votes. Congress fell from 41 to 27 right which is about a 14% drop. So essentially they took about one third of the votes of the Congress party. And so this is going to be a worrying trend for the Congress uh, gradually over the next a few years right as and when Amadmi party decides to sort of uh, expand its footprint and enter new states it has done it very successfully in Punjab as we saw right so much so that it went on to win the election but it will also attempt to do it in I would say various states maybe they'll target states which have significant urban populations to try and make that dent and so that is something to be seen but yeah, that, that's the story for this Gujarat election. Essentially, I would say looking at the bigger picture, uh, the Narendra Modi magic works very clearly in two pieces, right? One is in Lok Sabha election across states and then in assembly elections, it very certainly works in Gujarat. And to some extent, I would say in Uttar Pradesh, right? Where from he now represents Uttar Pradesh in the Lok Sabha. So I would say Gujarat and Uttar Pradesh are two places where the Modi magic really works in the assembly elections. And of course, it still works very strong in Lok Sabha elections. Now, coming to Himachal Pradesh, as you said, the trend was maintained of uh, every five years, right? The winning party changes there between Congress and BJP. Although the exit polls were sort of giving a very, very contested picture. And if you look at the vote share, it's almost identical between the two parties. Congress got about 43.9, BJP got 43%. But... In terms of seat, there's a big change, right? So Congress 40, BJP 25. And so I guess the Congress had a better sort of conversion to seats, right? When it comes to winning the seats. I think there were a lot of local factors at play in Himachal Pradesh. Uh, number one, the BJP kind of failed to manage inter-party local issues, which resulted in a lot of rebel candidates uh, contesting. So I believe the BJP had as many as 19 rebels contesting. Uh, I think two or three of them managed to win, but they possibly even sort of ma managed to dent the chances of BJP in few seats. That was one. The BJP incumbent government was facing uh, some challenges in terms of dealing with protests from apple farmers. Right, That's an issue we understand that the government did not really manage to contain very well. Then there was this Congress platform, uh, let's say, whole promise of bringing back the OPS, which is the old pension scheme. I would say that's a very disastrous policy that the Congress is talking about, right? Because Himachal Pradesh is already one of those states which has a massive fiscal burden in terms of pensions, right? And I think fundamentally, a few years back, all of us had sort of come to this understanding that going forward, everything will be defined benefit schemes, right? Where employees and employers both contribute towards retirement benefits but going back to the old pension schemes where the entire burden is on the government or, or the employer here it's the state government is going to be a massive fiscal challenge and if the congress takes this victory in haryana as sort of an endorsement of that policy i think uh, things could get very tricky right i don't know if they will sort of start using that as a promise in various uh, future elections in the next years or not but that's i would say that's a worrying development from the BJP's point of view, I guess a bit of a question mark is being raised on the party president JP Nattaji, right, who hails from Himachal Pradesh. And so for him to not to be able to win his home state sort of matters. If you drill down locally and maybe we could do that in future episodes, you would see that a lot of 
BJP lost a lot of ground in places like Kangra and Shimla. And so uh, it's basically a lot of local issues getting bubbled up. I guess, as I was saying, when Narendra Modi is not on the ticket, basically, right, uh, opposition parties are actually going to be competitive and could even win, right? We have seen that in various uh, elections since 2018, I would say, right? So I guess this was one more of that in that trend. Uh, but overall, I would not read too much into this other than I guess there's some introspection for the BJP to be done in terms of how strong do you want your local leadership to be. I think uh, apart from Yogi Adityanath and I would say Himanta Biswa Sharma in Assam, right? the BJP CMs seem to be not very, let's say, mass leaders anymore. And they are totally reliant on organization strength and the name of Prime Minister Modi to win elections. And where the organization itself is sort of pulling in different directions, then it becomes a challenge, right? And so uh, for the Congress, I would say, you know, uh, they managed to win without much involvement from the from the Gandhis. Maybe that's a good sign that, you know, Rahul Gandhi didn't campaign. And so that was a good, <laughs> good sign for Congress voters, right? Coming to the last one, uh, not much comments on the Delhi MCD from my side. I would say that... This was kind of expected with the, the divided sort of polity that we have in uh, administrative polity that we have in Delhi, right? With the center, state government, or, the, or let's say the pseudo state government and then the municipal corporation pulling in different directions. I guess it was kind of sensible for the voters to give uh, Amadmi party, which definitely is very dominant in the state, uh, the legislative assembly, right? To give them the MCD as well. And so they managed to, you know, significantly increase their uh, vote share from, uh, I believe, 26% to 42% in this election. The BJP was kind of stagnant. And so there was a lot of vote switching once again from the Congress to the Ahmadmi party that happened in Delhi. I think the next steps there are, uh, there will be some, a direct mayoral election, uh, which will be conducted soon. But yeah, I think the AAP continues to remain sort of dominant or become uh, more and more dominant in Delhi. And the Delhi elections... Sort of, if you leave aside the Lok Sabha, right, where the BJP continues to do very well in the Lok, uh, in the other elections, there's a very distinct sort of class divide that you can see, right, with people from the more poor classes backing the Ahmadmi Party, and this is probably where their uh, freebie politics or promises of freebies probably resonates the highest, and so. Delhi with its large uh, migrant population and also, you know, the poorer sections probably get attracted towards the policies of the AAP much more than the BJP. Also, I would say, I guess, uh, Arvind Kejriwal's personal popularity also matters, right? And when he is and essentially in the state election or the MCD, it is his face, right? Rather than, you know, Narendra Modi's face because he is not relevant for a municipality election. Even though the BJP tries still sort of tries to run every election with the face of Narendra Modi. So, yeah, I think these would be my takeaways from this uh, election cycle. Abhishek, a quick follow-up. I know we'll do an election recap with Rohit Jaramam if uh, possible. But, you know, does this signify AAP truly becoming a national party and, you know, Arvind Kejriwal becoming a national leader per se? So, I don't know if we, we are yet at the point where uh, we can say that the AAP has truly become a national party. I mean, technically they have become, but then the likes of CPM are also called technically national party in the election commission definitions. I think what we can say is that Arvind Kejriwal definitely has the ambition to be a national leader. He is definitely looking to fill up the opposition space to the BJP as much as possible. And with the inner churnings within the Congress party, 
their lack of focus in some ways uh, to electoral politics right now uh, definitely gives space for the Amadmi party to grow. And I think uh, what they will do is tactically choose states essentially where they see that uh, there is a space for the opposition party. There are no strong regional parties that are anyway filling up particular states, right? Because it doesn't make sense for the AAP perhaps to venture too much into, let's say, Bengal or Odisha or Tamil Nadu, where there are, you know, very strong regional players. Uh, but it might make more sense for them to spread out through North India, through Central India, where there is a direct clash between the BJP and Congress usually. And if the Congress is seen to be, you know, getting a little weak, the AAP can sort of slowly fill out that space. Alright, as I said, I mean, we'll probably do an election recap with Rohit Charaman, uh, our uh, political expert. Moving on, the ISRO successfully completed a hypersonic vehicle test run uh, and it met all its targets. On Friday, the ISRO announced that the joint test run of hypersonic vehicles with headquarters of the integrated defense staff, HQIDS, was successful. The ISRO's official Twitter handle read, ISRO and JSIIC have jointly conducted hypersonic vehicle trials. Uh, the trials achieved all required parameters and demonstrated hypersonic vehicle capability. A hypersonic vehicle can be an aeroplane, missile or spacecraft that has the ability to travel five times faster than the speed of sound or greater than Mach 5. Nirav, this is an interesting development and we've seen ISRO in the news uh, uh, quite often this year, right? I mean, fantastic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So one is, I think there's been a lot of push on like trying to utilize our own capabilities and our indigenous capabilities. So basically what this hypersonic missile does, it is a missile which can launch like an explosive, which could be nuclear or non-nuclear. And traveling at five times the speed of light, it's too fast to be detected by radar easily. So it can slip through uh, missile defense uh, systems. And it is also, uh, it can maneuver mid-flight as well. So this is like another arrow in our own quiver, right? So we have like one more weapon over there. Uh, which is a good deterrent. So, absolutely. Second thing is, just the positive externalities of all of these things and these things coming out in the media, right, is like good for our own science and technology development. I think more more components, if they are sourced indigenously and uh, more things which are done indigenously, uh, leads to like better private sector capabilities as well. Also in the news was, uh, we also constructed a trisonic wind tunnel. So, this is to aid the aerodynamic design of rockets and re-entry of spacecrafts, right? This is at the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center. So I think these, all these news which are coming out, I think it's quite positive. It's nice that, you know, in some place, at least the taxpayer money is being utilized for something positive, right? And uh, this also leads to us not having to import these missiles from elsewhere. See, we're already too dependent on Russia. And as you see that some external events somewhere else can actually lead to our own uh, defense capabilities being blocked by say Russia getting sanctions etc. So we need not just to save our like say foreign exchange but also for resilience and own reliability. I think now India is big enough rich enough that India has to depend on itself uh, and not just import all weapons. So that's another positive thing. So all in all it's like a very positive news and uh, this is as probably as I said all these are like small steps. We are going towards a journey. And now India being like the fifth largest economy, we shouldn't be importing arms from others. We shouldn't be importing arms from France or Russia, which actually in economy's term, maybe per capita is different or maybe in science and technology is different. But per capita, they're smaller GDP than India, right? Uh, sorry, overall gross GDP, right? Per capita, they're higher. So 
we should not be relying on smaller countries for our defense capabilities we are have to develop it on on our own and all these are small steps taken towards it and uh, hopefully there's a lot more to come in the future yeah apparently the indian scientists are also working on a project for an indigenous dual capable hypersonic cruise missile uh, as part of their hypersonic technology demonstrator vehicle program as well yeah i mean we've we've been thinking about an episode uh, where we deep dive with someone on the policy and the tech aspects of isro right and hopefully we'll have a, a scientist or an ex scientist uh, on the podcast uh, to discuss some of these developments i think it's uh, certainly very very encouraging and uh, the other aspect is uh, the collaboration of isro with uh, some of these startups right whether it's skyroot uh, agnicol pixel all of them have shown amazing progress over the year so yeah and, and fantastic and uh, you know just a reminder that isro operates at perhaps 1/10th the budget that nasa has so yeah moving on twitter files 2.0 and 3.0 are out uh, on friday barry weiss uh, the founder and editor of the free press published a second thread of the twitter files the thread was about secretive blacklists and shadow banning practices uh, by the previous head of trust and safety on saturday matt taibi published the third installment of the twitter files on deplatforming the president this thread recounts the suppression tactics used on the account of the then president donald trump in the days leading up to the deplatforming in jan 2020 well yesterday i recorded uh, an extensive chat on this with uh, ashish chandorkar and amit paranjpe guests on the podcast multiple times here and we spoke about uh, all of the stuff uh, censoring uh deplatforming uh, content moderation and so on and so forth so you will get a comprehensive overview of all that's happening with respect to twitter uh but yeah very quickly i think on the second twitter files one of the things that was uh, intriguing is this whole visibility filtering thing right which is just a nice way of saying censoring right and uh, well a lot of us just suspected all of this uh, was true we just uh, you know got uh, confirmation for all of this stuff right which is that hey some accounts could arbitrarily be shadow banned and what not now elon himself has come out and said that there is freedom of speech but not freedom of reach and that there could be restrictions on the amplification of tweets and what not right but uh, he has also come out and said that you know i mean they will call this out right and you can actually appeal for shadow banning per se right so it won't necessarily be shadow banning uh, in that sense right but yeah i mean interesting stuff uh, uh, abhishek what do you think about the third installment yeah before i go to the third installment this is i like to read out a screenshot in the second installment right shared by barry wise and this is a message by ul roth who was the uh, previous twitter uh, you know head of safety or whatever they call it right so he says in this me- message one of the biggest areas i would love research support on is regarding non removal policy interventions like disabling engagements and deamplification visibility filtering the hypothesis underlying much of what we have implemented is that if exposure to example misinformation directly causes harm we should use remediations that reduce exposure and limiting the spread virality of content and so on so basically what they are saying is you know that so their time and effort is basically was being spread spent a lot on how to control information by bad actors as they deem it right and essentially they deem everyone pretty much right of center as bad actors right and so i found actually twitter 2.0 the 2.0 files being much more interesting right the kind of people whose names were uh, there is a very sort of diverse group of people on one hand you had uh, dr bhattacharya right who is a researcher 
from Stanford who was basically saying that, you know, vaccines for children might not be a good idea, right? But at that time, uh, everyone uh, was of the opinion, everyone of the establishment had decided that vaccines, uh, any, any sort of anyone raising skepticism about vaccines have to be sort of pushed back, right? Their, their mis- spread of message has to be contained. On the other hand, you have the very viral anonymous account libs of TikTok. And if you see the kind of messages that were shared justifying it, they could not really pinpoint one single tweet or, uh, you know, one thread which they would say is one which is violating policy. And so the sort of argumentation that is going on is like the general direction of tweets that this person makes is harmful to a group of people like, let's say, LGBTQ people and so on, right? And so a lot of what is going on is invention of reasons to justify their actions, right? I mean, it's like you are dictators, but you want to feel good about yourself, right? And so there are extensive debates going on as to what's the best way to ban people or, you know, shadow ban people. Yeah. So the interesting thing about libs of TikTok, TikTok rather was they just repost content, Yes. Right. I mean, not, uh, not even uh, edit. They, they just not even uh, not even edit yeah. or quote or anything like that. Right. I mean, they just repost content, and so I mean, it. I don't know. It's very weird, right? So, if they're reposting content and that content is somehow not kosher, then how is the original content allowed then? So it's like so. Lip, what libs of TikTok would do is take, let's say, very weird or crazy sounding rants by liberals or progressives or woke people, right? And so, and to the normal person, the lay person, right, that sounds hysterical, right, that these crazy people are talking really crazy things. But what the, I would say what people like uh, Roth or Vijaya Gadde will say is that, you know, you are not giving the full context or that that post, the original post was for a certain audience, right? And now you are sharing it with a, a wider audience, which makes us look very bad. Basically, that that is what is happening, right? And so, yeah, I think uh, that was uh, 2.0. I think one of the things of interest for us is, you know, how much of shadow banning was happening in India, right? I don't know if uh, Matt Tybee or, you know, uh, Barry Wise will get down to global implications. I guess they are a lot more focused uh, with US domestic stuff right now. And that is... But Elon has said yes, right? I mean, Elon has said that global leaders have been suppressed. Yes, I I mean, he said that in a reply to someone asking him. But yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see uh, how much of how that much was happening. That was happening in it. Uh, coming to 3.0, I think uh, uh, this is basically talking about what went behind the scenes uh, in the lead up to the decision to ban Donald Trump from Twitter. And it sort of gives a detailed account of various communications happening uh, within uh, Twitter. I mean, look, the Republican Party and sections of that were going after two things, right? One was the validity of votes cast through postal ballots and other sort of newer newer methods, right? Like the non-traditional ways of voting. And that is a big policy sort of contention or issue in the United States, right? The Democrats have been pushing things like early voting, you know, having people uh, have the liberty of voting 30 days before elections and so on. And of course, US election is rules are very diverse, right? It's all at state levels. So that was a big sort of flashpoint and the Republicans were trying to trying their best to push back against that. But I think that was seen as anti-democratic, right, by liberals and uh, the Twitter management. Uh, and the other was, of course, election result denialism, right, which is basically saying that we will not accept 
the results of elections by certified officials and so it's it's kind of hard to say that what twitter did here was wrong apart from the fact that they were not playing fair here right now or neutral now they would say that neutrality in a fundamental question like democracy 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 itself right or democratic results itself is not optional right and they, they would say that the sanctity of democracy in the united states itself was at stake and in some ex- ways i would say the the january 6th spectacle right and while i personally feel that it was nothing like a coup it was like some crazy people who went overboard in their enthusiasm and sort of broke into the congress but there was no grand design behind that whole event right it was like a bunch of people who were sort of over enthusiastic or they were on they were they just uh, went overboard on a particular occasion but the spectacle of that has been made uh, to come across such that you know it's a massive insurrection that has uh, taken place and i guess in some sense in the public opinion court the uh, democratic side won right that debate right because it made the republicans and president trump look very bad uh, and anti democratic for not accepting the results of elections even possibly threatening the life of uh, the vice president then vice president mike pence and so on yeah it is uh, and uh, indeed you know there's plenty more that we can discuss but we won't belabor the point uh, do check out that uh, fascinating discussion i had with ashish and amit on the podcast we'll publish it uh, next week in other news apple plans to move out of china in recent weeks apple has accelerated its plans to shift production out of china the tech giant has reportedly asked its suppliers to plan more actively assembling apple products elsewhere in asia particularly india and vietnam and in uh, other related news the tsmc is due to invest 40 billion dollars in in an arizona plant for uh, chips uh, on tuesday the us president joe biden and the founder of tsmc announced the company's second chip plant in arizona more than tripling the company's investment from 12 billion dollars to 40 billion dollars this increase in investment comes as a result of the chips and science act signed into law in august this year uh need of interesting developments on both fronts um, you know what can you tell us about this so a uh, few things right so first is remember we had spoken about like the riots in the iphone city in jhanjo and now apple is facing a shortage of 6 million iphone handsets of iphone 14 and 14 max pro this is kind of like in the holiday season where a lot of people in the us are gifting and like people are buying and upgrading their phones in end of year uh this kind of shortage hits apple directly in the bottom line right so that is one thing all these years we've been having just in time production uh centralized production lowest cost high margins you have to think about just in case so i think in any ways it's it makes sense for apple to have a resilient supply chain that any shock could be a natural disaster could be anything could be some government policies should not derail your kind of production plans while it is expensive to have redundancies uh it gives you resilience so apple has been saying they want to move a lot of the iphone production to india and airpods macbooks and apple watches to vietnam right uh, but to be realistic they have 744 component suppliers 262 are based in china 71 in taiwan and in vietnam it's 28 and in india it's 11 right so india you got foxconn pegatron vistron having these assembly plants etc but so it's a long way but now they're taking a step in that direction right so i think they are trying to diversify uh, second thing is 
because of potential tensions between China and Taiwan, for TSMC, again it makes sense not to have all its production in Taiwan. What if there is war? What if whatever happened between Russia and Ukraine happens between China and Taiwan? So it is just prudent for them. I don't know whether there will be war or no, but if you do some sort of scenario analysis, it is prudent for them to diversify away. Uh, second thing is, if you don't, either you manufacture where all your assemblies going to happen. So you manufacture chips in Taiwan, assemble them in China and export them to the rest of the world. What Apple is trying to do is at least like asking TSMC to make all the chips in Arizona, at least for the US domestic consumption. So US has also passed the Chips Act and the Science and Technology Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a lot of benefits for uh, direct investment. So TSMC is using that, uh, setting up plants in Arizona. They have like the four nanometer chips plant, which will be ready by 2024. And the three nanometer chips plant will be ready by 2026, right? Which will already be in production in uh, 2024 in Taiwan itself. But <clears throat> what the Biden administration has done is trying to incentivize them to produce enough chips for the US consumption out of the whole world to be produced locally in Arizona. So this is kind of like reshoring and friendshoring which is happening. And that is a big trend. Since China joined WTO in 2000, you saw all production supply chains move to China. And now slowly they are moving out of China. So again, what it is in it for India, uh, India is trying to get to early 25% of production of iPhones uh, initially global and then up to 45, 40 to 45% by 2030. These are long timelines, but I think the direction is pretty clear. Apart from once you start getting Apple, which is the world's largest company and the most profitable company, right? Trying and diversifying its production lines, uh, which is also signal to the others. See, Apple has very high profit margin, so it can actually, it has the money to diversify. For a lot of others, it will lose your competitive advantage versus say like a Korean company, like Samsung, etc. But like Apple is, has enough profits, but this is also like a signal to the rest, right? Uh, India has done a lot in the semiconductor space, in PLIs, we've spoken a lot about it on Bharat Vata. Uh, US has done something in form of the CHIPS Act. So I think the rest of the world is waking up. Uh, I think for the US, which is the largest consumption market, uh, friends like Mexico definitely benefit, proximity to the US and uh, friendly to the US. So you'll see a bit of French shoring, you'll see a bit of reshoring. For India, while right now it is like in the French camp of the US, India also can get sanctions the way uh, semiconductor business has been sanctioned in China by Biden industry. Uh, yeah. So India needs to at least have, think similarly, at least for its own domestic consumption, try and have enough production that you are resilient for yourself and a little bit more for exports, right? So, and this also allows you to have like a bargaining chip, wrong use of the word chip or yeah, but India also has like leverage, right? In international negotiations. So once you're part of these supply chains, as Apple is realizing, it's very, very tough to diversify away from China. This is like an eight-year project, right? But if Apple is doing it slowly over this decade, we will see more and more people try and diversify away a bit, right? So it reduces the leverage that China has on them. And uh, as we've said, you're moving, you're moving from a just-in-time to just-in-case. You're going from focusing on efficiency towards resilience. All this probably leads to higher inflation and higher costs. But that cost is well worth paying for the safety of stability of your supply chain and uh, uh, resilience to shocks. So this is a good development, especially for India. And uh, hopefully we see a lot more of such things happening.
and something like apple moving its uh, production facilities here will raise our capabilities as well big time uh, right and uh, prepare us for any other business that might come our way right so fantastic stuff uh, on this front we earlier did an episode with garo goel and arun mampali on the indian semiconductor scene and you know what we need to do on in that regard uh, both of them are industry veterans uh, do check it out we'll link to it in the description as well well finally russia and us uh, swapped prisoners last week on thursday american basketball star britney griner arrived in the united states friday morning uh, after being released from a russian prison the wnba star was arrested in moscow 10 months ago on drug charges for carrying cannabis oil uh, griner was exchanged in abu dhabi on f- thursday for victor bout a 55 year old russian nat- national who was serving a 25 year sentence in a us prison Victor Bout is a convicted arms trafficker known as the Merchant of Death and had been held in an American prison for 12 years. Well, as I'm saying this, uh, you know, I'm smiling slightly because if you have a look at Victor Bout's Wikipedia page, it 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 reads like a quintessential Bond villain, right? The man has been everywhere. Eastern Europe, Afghanistan, the Middle East, uh, Africa, etc. Uh, and he's been in the middle of uh, you know uh, selling arms and ammunition to the shadiest characters in the world uh, right although i mean his wife claims he is innocent i mean, I mean it's uh, it's crazy uh, so nirav uh, what can you say about this okay so couple of things right look at the prisoners profiles so uh, brittany griner is like a very successful wnba player but she traveled to russia on her own personal trip to make some money playing basketball in the off season where she carried cannabis oil which while it might be legal in some states in the US is clearly illegal in Russia and was sentenced for 9 years for uh, smuggling drugs into Russia right so that while she claimed it's an honest mistake etc so this is her profile right while she might be very popular it is not like a very big crime second thing is it's not as if uh she can do either much damage to russia or do like massive positive uh, impact to the us on the other hand look at this victor bout guy he was part of the ussr soviet air force and he was when ussr was collapsing so he's actually of ukrainian descent born in tajikistan was a part of the intelligence with the air force he was in africa when this thing was uh, ussr was collapsing and Russia had like a lot of arms piles in various countries and a lot of planes which he sold in the black market and he sold things to the highest bidder and he was convicted in Thailand in 2008 was extradited to US in 2010 and in 2012 was sentenced to 25 years in prison uh, he's called merchant of death he's called the lord of war i think there are a couple of hollywood movies which have been made on him yeah yeah uh, lord of war is one of them and uh, he the reason that he's been convicted is you're selling arms to the colombian revolutionaries who were using them against like the us over there in their war for drugs or whatever so if you look at like these two characters you see that who's got more leverage here like despite russia being under sanctions and people say we are moving away from russia and russian economy is going to collapse they are able to get a person who can have like a massive impact across the world i don't know he's been out of action for 14 years since 2008 so i don't know what he has but <clears throat> he is a person who's been a spy an international agent arms dealer and selling to the highest bidder as you mentioned in afghanistan in the middle east 
in Angola and Mozambique, in Eastern Europe, in like Bosnia, Yugoslavia, right? He's been everywhere where there's been chaos and crimes, right? So he can have a massive negative impact to the world if he set out free. I don't know. He's 55 years old. I don't know what he'll do now. Probably just rest in retirement. Not just his wife, probably his mother, if she's alive, also thinks he's innocent. But uh, that's what it is. So I think this is either uh, making a mockery or like the as Americans say that, you know, like one American citizen is worth more than anyone else in the world. Or like this is probably pandering to the voter base and getting a very woke person out. Well, Americans don't care about Victor Bout, right? He's, he's not actually operated in the US, like to be fair. His, the crime that he's been convicted of is selling arms to some Colombians who used it against American troops, right? Uh, we've seen like Narcos, Narcos. So <laughs> it's the, the FARC, the revolutionary guys over there who bought arms from him and used it against American troops, which again, you want to say whether that's legal or illegal or legality of American troops in Colombia is also like very different. So a lot of average American citizen doesn't care about Victor Bob, right? So he's been let go. And average American citizen probably watches WNBA. I don't know. Uh, Brittany Griner is definitely one of the stars over there, right? So they are aware of that. Is person of minority both on race as well as like in uh, orientation. So part of the LGBT community as well as like being black. So probably that helps as well. But this is what they're telling that what kind of leverage you have. There are other people. There are US Marines who are in Russian captivity. There are US spies who could have been an equivalent exchange. The who you are trying to get back. And this tells you where the administration uh, values who more or feels that the impact of release of like some unknown spy. Spies especially are usually unknown because you don't want to be popular if you're a spy. So some unknown spy, you don't know what the exact impact is to be brought back. Uh, doesn't need to electoral gains. Whereas this might, right? So I think uh, that is what it is. And... Uh, I think uh, this one clearly uh, Russia has shown its leverage over the West over here and uh, US has shown uh, where their uh, loyalties or policies lie. Uh, second thing is for an average American spy who is working in a hostile environment in some other country, uh, this tells you that you are lower down in the pecking order than like an uh, athlete who's just gone in and try to smuggle drugs in unit for personal consumption in another country. So th- this could be demotivating for some people as well. But anyways, it's just uh, interesting to see. And uh, it's uh, I would definitely recommend people to check out profile of both Victor Bout and Brittany Griner. Both are very entertaining. It's all up there on Wikipedia and the internet. Yeah. And both are like characters. Both are one of a kind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the average American might be interested in WNBA. The stats are that, you know, the WNBA viewership is about 200 to 300,000 right now. And, uh, you know, in in contrast, uh, the NBA, I think, is around 10 million plus, right? So it's not something that, you know, WNBA is a, is a mainstream uh, sport or something like, you know, Britney is a national icon. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast uh, for this week, uh, end of the weekly. We have a few interesting episodes coming up. Uh, we have Valina Chakurova. Uh, in conversation with uh, Alexander Stahel, uh, and they spoke about energy sanctions and the global energy crisis. Again, very relevant topic. We're going to publish that uh, next week. Uh, and then there's one about the ongoing Twitter drama. I spoke to Ashish Chandorkar and Amit Paranjpe. Uh, it was a fun conversation. Uh, we'll publish that as well. 
Uh, we have another one planned on uh, movies, right? I mean, something that we don't discuss as often uh, on Bharat Varta. I think we really should. So I'm going to be talking to uh, Kaushal Inamdar, who you've heard earlier as well on the podcast podcast. Uh, and is a very famous music producer, director. Uh, I'm going to be talking to him about uh, the portrayal of, uh, you know, Dharma and movies and also how the South Indian movies have been doing well this year and so on and so forth. Uh, so yeah, fascinating episodes coming up. Uh, do tune in uh, to all of these and share this widely with your family and friends. Until next week, uh, from Neera, Abhishek and myself, stay safe, take care and Jai Hind.